letter to the church of Thessalonica, chapter 5. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should, su should surprise you like a thief. You are children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test all of them. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through, through and through. May your spirit... May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all of God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Somebody told me this week that they like to say that with me, and I, not, I don't really demand it as a tradition or anything, but I've always ended the scripture reading with that little saying, uh, perhaps just because it's an old tradition that I grew up with, but the response is thanks be to God. And the idea, I guess, is, is that if we are so blessed that we have the word of God so easily accessible to us, why not give thanks to God when it's presented to us? Amen. So... Well, if you're a student of history like me, then you know that throughout the ages there have been apocalyptic cults. There's usually one that pops up every now and again, even in our modern uh, awareness. They're usually pretty fatal in the way that they end, and it's usually kind of an embarrassment to people who call themselves by some form of the same thing. So there will be these Christian cults um, and 
you know, talk, talking about a small world. In my previous church before coming here, there was a lady who was a classmate of Jim Jones of Jonestown fame. If you don't know who I'm talking about, you're probably better off not knowing, but it's one of the ugly incidents in the history of our faith. And uh, he was a Methodist even. But people sometimes become so obsessed with the end of the world that they develop some pretty strange behaviors around this obsession. There was a group in Jesus' day that was like that. They were called the Essenes. The Essenes lived down around the Dead Sea and uh, in a very dry and barren place. And they lived at first for about 100 years before Jesus is more of a, of a uh, I guess you'd just say extreme. They, they weren't necessarily apocalyptic, but they were really dedicated to keeping the uh, faith pure. And so they saw how uh, the temple worship in Jerusalem was gradually becoming more commercialized and becoming more political in its orientation. And so in a lot of respects, um, the worship that had been so significant in Jerusalem to the founders of that city were was, was kind of traded off to a more political orientation. And there were people like the Essenes who chose rather than live amongst these betrayals of the true faith to just separate from it altogether. And so they went to a place they were pretty sure nobody else would want to be and they kept the faith. And one of the things that the Essenes are credited with are those very famous Dead Sea Scrolls, which are the oldest known transcripts of scripture. They are a group that were known particularly for holding to the teachings of Isaiah. And uh, this group eventually became known as an apocalyptic cult because they began to see how the world around them was starting to turn so ugly that they couldn't imagine an end that didn't result in the destruction of Jerusalem. And as far as they were concerned, the world as they knew it. And so they stopped having children and so forth because they didn't see the point. And that's a really loose explanation of the Essenes. Some people have speculated that John the Baptist and even Jesus were part of the Essenes, but there's absolutely no evidence for that. It's just that they seem to have similar messages. It might be better to say that the Essenes, having kept a purer faith and a less politically oriented faith, were perhaps more, more able to grasp Jesus's reformation of Judaism. And in that respect, they may have aligned themselves with him if they'd taken the time to really get to know him. And yet there's no evidence that he was one of them or that John the Baptist was one of them. Nevertheless, there's this whole idea that there are groups of us who regularly begin to feel this sort of despair because the religion seems to have lost its purity because we begin to see this, this, uh, the same thing we talk about every year at Christmas time. I mean, you know, Charlie Brown talked about it in Charlie Brown Christmas, didn't he? It's all so commercial, Linus. What's this really about? And all of you could probably stand there with your blankie and tell me exactly what Linus said. 
We've always struggled with this, but when did it become an apocalyptic thing? That's what's fascinating. Because sooner or later, the fear of commercialization and that kind of thing, it sort of turns into a, a sort of angst. It switches from anxiety to more of a ire. And we begin to have this hostile resentment for the way that the faith has been corrupted. And so I find myself on this second Sunday of telling you about the return of Jesus, since I didn't do that on the first Sunday in Advent. I find myself saying to you, this is a constant dilemma that we are struggling with in the church. We have taken pains this year at this church to take it easy, to just kind of relax a little bit and not overdo anything. We've taken pains to simplify the life of the church for a season so that we can rest and reset, so that we can regain perspective. And in that way, it's a good thing. But should we become hostile towards the way in which the world is an influence on our religious practice and our society of Christian discipleship, we would then risk becoming some sort of cult. So there's this constant struggle to do the right thing, but to not become too extreme in one way or the other, and then isolate ourselves and be of no earthly good to our Heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. But what are we supposed to do in this age when there's so much anxiety and fear about things? Uh, somebody was telling me earlier before the service, I think it was Charlie, we were talking about the rocket man, that uh, little fellow over there in North Korea who's making a lot of noise and trying to scare everybody. And, you know, uh, if you search the internet like I did recently, you will find that since World War II, our popular culture has become increasingly obsessed with the end of the world. Those of us who know that that was the beginning of the nuclear age will understand then why that fear became common and is justified because now we have within our grasp the ability to do incredible destruction and even perhaps bring about the end of the world. But they've been fearing this sort of thing for long before and probably will for a long time into the future, God willing, and we survive. But the truth is, is each year we get more and more movies and books and things about the end of the world. You know the, 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 the scenario, they usually are movies about uh, or books about some ultimate threat that will bring about a catastrophic end to the world unless some superhero, super savior comes and delivers us. So the Avengers come and they drive away the problem, right? Superman fixes the problem. Batman makes some sort of bat thing that will help solve the problem and then you have another scenario that's a little like that, but it's rather a group of unsung heroes in some sort of uh, psychological thriller where they have to beat the clock or cut the right wire or something in order to end the great threat before it does all the damage. And then, of course, we have all those apocalyptic scenarios in the video games and in the movies and the books where the world has already succumbed to some terrible destruction and a handful of survivors are trying to rebuild the civilization. And 
all of this stuff is fascinating. I really enjoy thinking through the various plots and trying to imagine the human condition under these interesting circumstances. But it's fascinating to me that there aren't very many movies or books, at least not blockbusters and uh, bestsellers that talk about other things because I believe our society has truly become really negative and uh, hopeless. And so we find it easier to imagine a future where a great global threat is thwarted by a superhero from a comic book than a well-described, defined, and outlined future in the Bible that is met by someone who knew it was coming, already had a plan, and assured us that it would be okay. Now you say, really? Well, you know, the Bible tells us that when God spoke everything into existence, God said it was good. And then sin entered the world through this temptation and the human condition was forever tainted by sin, at least until the coming of a savior and a final judgment. And the world's been messed up by sin ever since. But in the beginning, it was good. And God liked what God had done. So a reasonable person, perhaps somebody who enjoys a good apocalyptic thriller in the movie theater or a good book or any kind of good story, a reasonable person would then reasonably conclude that we like stories that have a clear beginning, middle, and end, that it's in our DNA, that it is very likely that we, no matter how gifted we are in the study of literature or movie critics, doesn't matter who you are, you know when you've read a story that doesn't make sense, don't you? You know, you, you recognize a plot hole when you see one, don't you? In fact, we love good stories so much that we're, pretty, we're, we're all pretty skilled at knowing when we've seen something good. Now, now, we all have our little cult favorites. I have some. And sometimes people who are more sensible than me about my cult favorites will say, well, you know, that's the dumbest story I've ever heard. And I, I don't care. I just like it. It's just, it's just fun, you know. How many of you will watch movies like that in the next week or so? They're Christmas stories that you really like, and you've long since forgotten whether the story was well-written or not, and you just like it, right? But when we're talking about the story of God's creation, we must understand and accept that there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, and that's just as it should be. The thing that separates people of faith in the Bible from everyone else is that we see the Bible's story of the beginning, the middle, and the end of things not as a finality, but simply as a transition. You see, what really separates Christians and Jews from the rest of the world is our whole attitude towards death. Because we don't see it as an end, but rather a transition. 
And so, as strange as it sounds for us to talk a week before Christmas about death and destruction, it actually makes perfect sense. Because what God has done is given us the answer to the one thing that we all fear most, which is death. And if we really are honest about it, it isn't even dying that scares us so much as this anxiety we have about what happens next. The most amazing thing about humanity is that we were made in the image of God, and so we've been given an intellect and a sense of self-awareness that is like only God and makes us unique in all of creation. But that same self-awareness torments us when we think about the end of things. It torments us when we think about the ultimate destruction of the earth or the end of our own lives. And it torments us because we can't imagine just switching off and no longer being self-aware. And so we have this need to think beyond our physical existence, beyond the world as we understand it. And Jesus gives us the answer. He stepped out of timeless eternity into our time, became like us, dwelt among us, suffered in every way that we suffer, looked at the world through our eyes and with our limitations, experienced the world, and then demonstrated that there was a unique power that was available to us even in the midst of our limit. And then he demonstrated that even death was not the end because after being brutally killed and laid in the tomb, he rose again. By his own authority, he came out of the grave, dwelt among us so that there was no doubt that this was the same Jesus they had known, and when the time was right, departed not to be separated from us, but in order to usher in an age wherein the Holy Spirit, that entity, that person that is the very heart's blood of God, the Father, Jesus, the Son, and now us, the body of Christ. That Holy Spirit might dwell with all of us wherever until the coming of the end of the age, as Jesus described it. That when a judgment came upon us, it wouldn't end everything. It would simply change into something yet unknown, but just as good as it was in the beginning. So why are we afraid? I feel that I need to close for the sake of time, but I can't leave out this one illustration. I just can't. I don't know if you've heard of Jerry Clower, but he was one of my favorite comedians of all time. Some of you I can tell know exactly who I'm talking about. He was known as the mouth of the Mississippi. He told a lot of funny stories about people from the deep south people who were remarkably wonderful people, but perhaps not the most sophisticated people in the world. And one day in his telling, uh, there was a fellow named Kirk Garner who was deeply committed to church, never missed an opportunity to be in church, but he wasn't the most highly educated person. Rumor had it that that water spigot he had in his front yard didn't hook up to anything because he still carried water from the creek a mile away. Rumor had it that the antenna on his roof didn't connect to anything because he didn't even know what radio was. But he knew his Bible as well as he could. And one day after an airplane had been doing some sky riding, 
he happened to look up and see the words beginning to fade away, and he got terrified, and he yelled to his wife, Callie, it's judgment. God done wrote it on the sky. Of course, Callie said, I haven't heard any bells ringing. I don't hear any trumpet blast. Are you sure about this? God done wrote it on the sky. And with that, Kirk took off running down the road fast as he could. And a neighbor came upon him and knew something had to be wrong, grabbed him and said, Kirk, what is wrong with you? To which Kirk said, don't you see? It's judgment. God done wrote it on the sky. And the man said, Kirk, it says Pepsi-Cola. <laughs> An airplane did that. Kirk took a little convincing, but eventually he went home and somewhat ashamed. And the next day, while he was talking to Jerry's dad, who he relates this story through, uh, Jerry's dad asked Kirk, he said, so, so if it was judgment, did, what exactly did you plan to do? And he said, well, I was just going to keep running until judgment overtook me. <laughs> we don't have to be afraid of the judgment. We don't have to be afraid. I'm not saying times are going to be difficult because sometimes the things are difficult. Most of you have been through difficult times. Most of you have suffered one way or another and probably will again. If only with the ravages of old age. But the truth is, is the ultimate end of things is cared for with the tender loving grace of our Heavenly Father and it has been assured to go well for us because of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we really have nothing to fear other than a little bit of discomfort. And can I be honest with you? As the shepherd that loves you, comfort is killing church all over this country. Comfort is killing the faith because we work so hard to be comfortable. We need to embrace discomfort and recognize that the big things are taken care of and the discomforts are really just part of being in this world, but no longer of this world. Remember, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we have no need to fear evil because our Lord is with us. Amen. Dear God, thank you for your word. Now burn it upon our hearts. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen. Amen.